The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. It's in the Scottish government's interest, not just to protect, obviously, public services, but also to show further divergence from the rest of the UK. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. The other factor playing into all this is Brexit. Neither political party will even contemplate relaxing EU migration. This is the elephant in the room, isn't it? You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Stephen Carroll. And I'm Caroline Hepko. Welcome to the programme. So we are back for Prime Minister's Questions as Parliament is back from recess. Remember, the last Prime Minister's Questions was the rare show of unity uh, between Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer as it was the day of the visit by Ukraine's President Zelensky to the UK. So we're expecting to see politics return to normal today and to talk about the subject that we've been talking about all week on this programme, and that is the hopes for an imminent deal with the European Union uh, on changing those post-Brexit trade rules around Northern Ireland, Mm. a major uh, challenge for the current government, a major obstacle that needs to be overcome. Uh, We're not there yet. The official line is is that intensive negotiations with the EU continue on resolving these issues. But we had Northern Ireland's Geoffrey Donaldson, the leader of the Democratic Unionist Party, down in Westminster last night meeting uh, the European Research Group, those pro-Brexit backbench Tory MPs, uh, wanting to talk to them about the deal. He said one element at least is not acceptable to him, and that's the idea that Northern Irish businesses will have to make goods in line with EU regulations, even if they're not going to leave Northern Ireland. But I feel like there's good. We're playing a lot of Brexit bingo, I think, in today's PMQs. Yeah, sigh. We're back to Brexit again. And yet, as you say, it does need to be resolved. Um, and yet, I think, you know, we have been pretty sceptical, haven't we, hearing about the push from the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak to get this deal done. Uh, there's been a lot of scepticism scepticism about exactly when we might get uh, this agreement yes talking to the eu but as you say it's about the wary erg mps Mm. they're talking about wanting their hands on the legal text so they're holding sunak's feet to the fire then you've got people like tobias elwood saying ignore the shrill voices can sunak really ignore the the shrill voices he needs them uh, on board uh, and people like you know, the chair of the ERG, Mark Francois, are holding the Prime Minister's feet to the fire. And of course, they're all discussing this, as you say, without the actual text of the agreement to look at, because there isn't one for the moment. So that is uh, part of the the background to these discussions, is remembering that actually not everyone has all the details. They only have what the Prime Minister has told them about it. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Also, you know, you've got a lot of people going out to bat for the government, people like the Veteran Affairs Minister, Johnny Mercer, you know, always a great speaker. He was on Sky News talking about this Brexit deal is not going to sell anyone out. I mean, that's also, though, sigh, a return to that very emotive language around Brexit. Mm, Well, that language uh, stays emotive. In fact, a fun fact for you, Caroline. Uh, (laughs) How many times do you think the word Brexit has been said in the House of Commons since the referendum in 2016? I've got no idea. Who on earth is counting? (laughs) Somebody, i.e. our producer James, is counting. (laughs) 21,712 times mentioned in the records of the House of Commons, and that doesn't even count. Um, That means 13 times a day 
every working day for Parliament since the referendum. Oh, well, that kind of uh, shoots down the argument of, you know, Brexit is done and we're moving on, etc. Yes, it's still very much front and centre. Let's listen into the Labour leader, Keir Starmer. Prime Minister, in his comments about Ukraine, I had the privilege last week of seeing firsthand the courage and resilience of the Ukrainian people, and we must continue to stand united in this House in support of Ukraine. Mr Speaker, can I also say that the thoughts of the whole House, I'm sure the whole country, will be with the family of Nicola Bully at this very, very difficult time. And can I welcome the new member for West Lancashire to her first PMQs. Mr Speaker, the Labour Party is proud to be the party of the Good Friday Agreement and peace and prosperity in Northern Ireland. We welcome attempts to make the protocol work more effectively. Does the Prime Minister agree with me that it has been poorly implemented and that the basis for any deal must be removing unnecessary checks on goods? Prime Minister. Well, Mr. Mr. Speaker, let me welcome the uh, Honourable Lady to her place and associate myself with the remarks of the Honourable Gentleman uh, about Nicola Bully's family. Our thoughts are, of course, with them. Uh, As he knows, we are still in active discussions with the European Union, but he should know that I am a Conservative, a Brexiter and a Unionist, and any agreement that we reach needs to tick all three boxes. It needs to ensure sovereignty for Northern Ireland It needs to safeguard Northern Ireland's place in our union, and it needs to find practical solutions to the problems faced by people and businesses. I will be resolute in fighting for what is best for Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom. Mr Speaker, we all agree that the protocol can be improved, but there are trade-offs, and we need to face up to them. His predecessor told businesses that there would be no forms, no checks, no barriers of any kind. That was absolute nonsense, and it destroyed trust. So in the interest of restoring that trust, will he confirm that to avoid a hard border on the island of Ireland, the deal he's negotiating is going to see Northern Ireland continue to follow some EU law? Mr Speaker, I think the the Honourable Gentleman is is jumping ahead. We are still... We are still... We are still in intensive, intensive discussions with the European Union to ensure that we can find agreement that meets the test that I set, and that is sovereignty for Northern Ireland. It's Northern Ireland's place in our precious union, and it is to find practical solutions to the problems faced by people and businesses. I have spent time engaging and listening to those communities in Northern Ireland, businesses and political parties. I have a good understanding of what is required, and I will keep fighting until we get it. Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister is biting his tongue, but at some point the irreconcilables on his benches are going to twig, and they're going to come after him. The former Trade Minister says there can be no role for the European Court of Justice in Northern Ireland. So will the Prime Minister be honest with them and tell them that's not going to happen? Mr Mr Speaker, now again, we we need to keep going to actually secure an acceptable agreement. But for the Honourable Gentleman to be talking about a deal that he hasn't even seen, that we're... That we, that, we are still, that we are still negotiating, 
that isn't finalised, and it's, it's his usual position when it comes to the European Union. It's, it's give the EU a blank cheque and agree to anything they offer. It's, it's, not, it's not a strategy, Mr Speaker. That's surrender. Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, it, it's not my questions he's avoiding, it's their questions he's avoiding. His predecessors wasted months pushing the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. If implemented, it would tie us up in battles with the EU, the United States and others at precisely the time we should be building common ground to boost our economy and show unity against Putin. Now, the Prime Minister clearly wants a closer relationship with the EU, so can he confirm that if there's a deal, he will pull the protocol bill? Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, look, the the Honourable Gentleman wants to put the EU first. I want to put Northern Ireland first. And and on these questions, questions, the Honourable Gentleman said he would respect the result of the referendum, and then he promised to back a second one. All the while, he was constantly voting to frustrate Brexit. And I know what the British people know, that on this question, he can't be trusted to stick up for Britain. Mr Speaker, the sound you hear is them cheering the Prime Minister, pulling the wool over their eyes. It's the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, the 30th anniversary of the Downing Street Declaration. Tony Blair and John Major both recognise that politics in Northern Ireland is built on trust and not telling people what they want to hear, and the need to take seriously the concerns of both communities, nationalists and unionists. It's vital their voices are heard. So can the Prime Minister confirm that whatever deal he brings back, this House will get a vote on it? Minister. Mr Speaker, of course, of course Parliament will express its view. But what is crucial? But what, what is crucial here? But what is crucial here is that, that this, is not, this is not about his desire to play political games in this House with this situation. This is about what is best for the people and communities of Northern Ireland. And that, Mr Speaker, is what I will keep fighting for. Well, Mr Speaker, I take it from that that this House will get a vote, and I look forward to that vote in due course. Because everyone knows the basis of this deal has been agreed for weeks, but it's the same old story. The country has to wait while he plucks up the courage to take on the malcontents, the reckless, the wreckers on his own benches. But I'm here to tell him he doesn't need to worry about that because we will put country before party and ensure that Labour votes to get it through. He should accept our offer, ignore the howls of indignation from those on his side who will never take yes for an answer. Why doesn't he just get on with it? Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, what, what I am doing is talking and listening to the people of Northern Ireland. That is the right thing to do. It's to make sure that we can respond and resolve to the concerns of the unionist communities and businesses in Northern Ireland, and that is what I will keep doing. But, Mr Speaker, we know that the Honourable Gentleman talks about his plans. We have heard that tomorrow he's going to announce five missions. But we, all, we, all, we already know what they are. 
It's uncontrolled immigration. It's reckless spending. It's higher debt. And it's softer sentences. And for the fifth pledge, the fifth pledge, Mr Speaker, we all know it's that he reserves the right to change his mind on the other four. That was the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and the Labour leader Keir Starmer during today's Prime Minister's questions. Um, I do like when politics is predictable. Uh, Yeah, it it was. But basically the upshot of it is the country's still in limbo when it comes to the protocol arrangements, when it comes to Northern Ireland and how it does trade with the UK and the EU. It looks as if Sunak didn't have more to bring uh, to Parliament than saying that the deal has not yet been done. Yeah, active discussions, intensive discussions. That's how the Prime Minister described the state of play when it comes to this new deal, which will change uh, the uh, withdrawal agreement mm. and the rules as they relate to Northern Ireland. Sunak laying out his three tests for this deal. One, sovereignty in Northern Ireland. Secondly, Northern Ireland's place within the United Kingdom. And thirdly, practical solutions uh, for people and businesses. So Rishi Sunak has three tests. The Democratic Unionist Party has seven tests that they want to be met. And they've said there's only three or four of those that have been met by what they know about the current deal. So it does actually seem like we're getting, if possible, further away from an agreement than certainly the signals and the... the, the hints had been giving us in, in recent days as well. We did hear, though, that there will be a vote in Parliament. Parliament will get will express its view, is what the Prime well, Minister said. So the, the form of words, perhaps, Hang on a choice. second. Yes, I, I think that there's a big hole in saying that, that Parliament will have you know, a say that is not guaranteeing, mm. actually, a vote. Uh, the Labour leader said that he would take it as such, but I don't think that that's really what the Prime Minister actually was saying. Um, but I do think that the Labour leader did hit on a significant sore point, a difficulty for the Conservatives, which is that there is a hardcore within the Conservative Party, the ERG group, who find um, you know, the idea of, um, you know, of, a, of any split between Northern Ireland and England, Wales and Scotland in trade terms as offensive to them effectively, mm. as something um, objectionable. And I do pick up on a couple of new taglines that the Labour leader was trying out, talking about the front benches being the irreconcilables. That's another good phrase. Yeah, exactly. We can add that to the list of uh, of political phrases that we use. I mean, Keir Starmer really did pick on the points which are still, as as we know them, to be the sticking points in, in where the agreement is as well, saying, you know, asking the Prime Minister to be, quote, honest about the role of the European Court of Justice, that it won't yes. be gotten rid of altogether. And that is, as far as we know, in legal reality, the situation that will happen. The, the European Court of Justice, as it is the ultimate interpreter and only interpreter of European Union law, will have to have some role in the rolling out of this agreement as it pertains to European law. The question is, what form will that take? Mm. And will it take a form in which that will become acceptable? to the DUP in Northern Ireland and those backbench Tory MPs uh, who are worried about it as well. So, I mean, Keir Starmer, to give him credit, pointed very directly at the point where the fudge, as in all diplomacy, there's always a fudge, where the fudge will be, um, and pointing to the fact that, you know, perhaps it's not fair to allude to the fact that you could remove them out of the ECJ altogether. Yeah, I I think there were a couple of things. It got heated, didn't it, at the beginning, with backbench MPs on the Labour side, on the Labour benches, it would seem, with shouts of, be honest, 
at the Prime Minister. They were quite loud. I thought that was interesting. But also, Keir Starmer taking the opportunity to say to the Conservative leader, take up our offer, i.e. ditch the people within your own party and take Labour uh, votes in order to get a Northern Ireland, uh, a fresh Northern Ireland deal done. I mean, that that's the kind of impossible question, isn't it? Indeed. Uh, Keir Starmer pointing to, of course, the Labour Party's role as Tony Blair was Prime Minister when mm-hmm. the Good Friday Agreement uh, was negotiated and, and pointing also to the Downing Street Declaration 30 years ago as well and, and, and saying that Tony Blair and John Major both recognise that politics in Northern Ireland is based yeah. on trust, which will be a key issue. And that's essentially what Rishi Sunak has to do, win the trust of the parties in Northern Ireland when it comes to supporting this deal. Also, there's just one other sorry thing that I do want to mention. It only uh, got um, brief reference, but something completely different, but I think very important for potentially the general election that is to come perhaps in 18 months' time. There is growing disquiet, I sense, around violence against women. And Nicola Bluley was Mm. referenced, the tragic case of of that mother that was on the front pages of newspapers for days, if not the last couple of weeks, the awful sort of social media implications of, of that and the way that the local police force handled it, the private medical information um, of uh, this individual. The Labour leader, Keir Starmer, mentioned it, you know, that his thoughts are with the family of this victim, but actually... Um, it was also referenced again by the Prime Minister at the end, you know, softer sentences was what he was saying you would get if, if the Labour leadership got in. And actually, I think crime and violence in the UK is, is going to be an election yeah, issue. On, and on a day where everything has been so dominated by Brexit and the negotiations, it is important uh, to make reference to suppose, those other issues. And as you say, it gives us a hint of some of the other issues that will play into the public conversation running into the next uh, general election as well. We are just seeing that the DUP leader, Geoffrey Donaldson, has just asked a question of the the Prime Minister as well, talking uh, about how it is unacceptable that Northern Ireland has been put in a place where the protocol is imposed that harms their place within the United Kingdom, um, but also looking at some of the, the, essentially him asking the Prime Minister to to rewrite the, the treaty text uh, in this change to the Northern mm. Ireland Protocol. So interesting to see that uh, we have politicians also uh, contributing from Northern Ireland to Prime Minister's questions today. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Okay, let's bring in our UK correspondent, Lizzie Burden, who's also been listening in to PMQs. Uh, So what did you extract from that in terms of where we are on the deal? Have we gotten closer or further away? Well, you heard Rishi Sunak there saying that he's still in intensive discussion with the EU. He said he'd keep fighting until we get what's required. I thought it was really interesting when Keir Starmer tried to lure him into checkmate and 
tell him he could put it through Parliament, we'll give you the political cover. But clearly Rishi Sunak wants to get the DUP on side and the European research group to follow. Um, It's interesting that meeting yesterday between the DUP and the ERG, uh, because it seems to have been more about trade, well, the flow of goods between Northern Ireland and Great Britain rather than the ECJ the role of the ECJ mm. which we which had been uh, emphasised as the main sticking point before and it was interesting in PMQs to hear Sunak batting away questions on whether there'd be a role for the ECJ um, just there uh, you also heard Sunak saying to Starmer you're talking about a deal that you haven't even seen that is the same frustration that is shared by some of his own MPs and it's a catch-22 because he seems to be trying to get the perfect deal that they could agree to but it has the same kind of um, secrecy around it that's straight out of the Theresa May playbook and as you know the former director of Onward the Tory think tank um, Will Tanner who advised Theresa May is now back in number 10 working for Rishi Sunak Uh, so you can perhaps see why uh, that's there Uh, look it's difficult to there are so many obstacles towards getting this deal as we're waiting for for progress to to be made on that as well you've actually been looking ahead to to what might happen next when when this deal comes through because of course so much has been held up and focused on this one particular issue where there's obviously much broader consequences around Brexit's effect on the UK economy and and a potential upside from when this this deal is agreed yeah so economically this deal could relieve the uncertainty that stopped businesses from investing in the UK and therefore it could help to boost growth. And I was speaking to JP Morgan Asset Management's Chief Market Strategist Karen Ward with you as well, Caroline, this morning. What's important here is Karen Ward is on the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt's Economic Advisory Council. Take a listen to her take. One of the features of the UK, um, which makes it look relatively poor compared to our international peers, is business investment has been remarkably subdued and that has coincided with the referendum in 2016. So we've had now six years of very weak business investment. And and companies need certainty. They need their order books full. You can't you can't entice companies to spend with low interest rates and tax incentives. It never does the job. They need their order books full and they need certainty uh, that those order books are going to remain full. So I think this is one component of that as well as just political stability, you know, a few years of calm without dealing with things like a global pandemic, all of those that would be in the ingredients that would see business investment come back. Any sense of a number on how much it could be boosted by? It would be significant. I mean, in essence, the numbers are that UK business investment is about the same level that it was in 2016. Uh, The likes of France and Spain, those numbers are around 20% higher. So it would be really meaningful. And of course, with investment then solves all the other economic ills that we have, which is low productivity, low real wages, um, fiscal drag. Uh, So it, it really is the secret source for economists' business investment. The secret source. So you can see the Prime Minister has another reason to make progress on a Brexit deal, especially when there's a budget coming in March, because presumably this would boost the Office for Budget Responsibilities forecasts, give the Chancellor more headroom, if not in this forecast, down the line, once there's evidence that the uncertainty is clearing. But so I'm going to add a doubt of scepticism to that. I mean, just sorting out trade with Northern Ireland is not going to do that. It's the issue of the potential for a rapprochement with Europe that is. That's what Karen Ward is surely getting at, Lizzie. Well, look, if you go back to the forecasts from the Office for Budget Responsibility, it estimated that Brexit would knock 4% off the level of GDP, almost half of which has already happened. Um, So it would make sense that actually 
some of this would be undone if you relieve the uncertainty. And actually, Berenberg's Carolyn Pickering put more numbers on it in a note this week. He said removing the uncertainty could unleash investment growth of 10% a year, which would add as much as 0.5% to GDP a year and increase potential tax revenues. Okay, Lizzie Burden, thank you very much. Our UK correspondent, Lizzie Burden, there. Let's turn to a different topic which might help to boost economic growth here in Britain, and that's changes to planning laws. The UK could have an extra 4.3 million homes if it were run uh, more in line with how other European countries handle these issues. That's something that a, a comparison that perhaps may arc some Tory MPs. Yeah, our reporter Louise Moon has written this story on the Bloomberg Terminal. And Louise, great to have you with us. The scale of the problem then, the lack of home building in Britain. Yes, as you say, some quite staggering figures that the UK's got this backlog of 4.3 million homes. So this this is a report by the Centre for Cities, which is laying the the blame for our housing crisis at the moment on regulations that were introduced in 1947. So this was after the Second World War and they're still in place today. And essentially these give local authorities a lot of power to veto planning applications, even if they abide by rules. So the key thing is that this has stifled investment, it's stifled growth, it's led to the overall decline of the numbers of homes being built in the UK. Um, So there's some interesting data in there. House building rates fell 40% after the laws and the percentage of GDP that's dedicated to house building is far below places like the Netherlands and Finland. So I think the UK, there was a figure of something like 3.3% of GDP after the laws um, within a a 20-year period, whereas Finland had 6.2%. And so the scale of the problem, as you say... um, the figures from the think tank on what needs to change is arguing that the that England needs to build almost 450,000 new homes every year for 25 years to match Oof. Europe's rates. Um, so not only is that double our rate that we currently build at, um, but it's actually, uh, yeah, so it's, it's double our current rate and um, the UK has already pulled back on pledges that it had. So the prospects aren't looking too great. Uh, Louisa, it, well, is there any prospect of, of what, how this could be fixed or why hasn't it been until now? Well, yeah, so it's become essentially a bit of a political problem. So governments over the years have have put in pledges and then backtracked on these pledges when they've come up against opposition. So you mentioned um, Tory MPs earlier. So the most recent example of this was in December. So Rishi Sunak dropped plans for compulsory targets for house building. Um, And that was because... Over, I think it was over 100 of his own MPs threatened to rebel against this. They're saying that you can't force local communities to accept development that they don't necessarily want. Um, this is, you know, democratic arguments and it's also environmental reasons that people don't want this. Um, and that echoes efforts by Boris Johnson. He also wanted to increase the number of homes being built um, and that also came up against opposition and didn't come to fruition. So any sort of these efforts have come up against quite significant headwinds over the years. Louise, so interesting. Thank you so much for your reporting, bringing that to our attention. The planning laws, they certainly are a great difficulty here in the UK. That was Bloomberg's Louise Moon. Yeah, fascinating story there. We are, of course, continuing to watch the developments uh, on the Brexit story uh, from Prime Minister's questions. It'll be interesting to see the the full details of those exchanges between the DUP's Geoffrey Donaldson and the Prime Minister, their first public exchange uh, on this issue. So uh, one to watch from that. But that is it from us for today. If you like the programme, you can subscribe to us as a podcast give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts Spotify or wherever you listen This episode was produced by James Wilcock and Mouful Hussain was on sound I'm Caroline Hepke And I'm Stephen Carroll We will be back with more on UK politics tomorrow This is Bloomberg Bloomberg UK politics Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.